one did have the, the audacity maybe to ask the police whether they do like donuts. They all affirmed that they do. <laughs> so I thought it was really good. Thank you for, for putting that on. Welcome back to our um, series in our Statement of Faith. And this morning we are again um, considering the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And if you recall, I want to do a little bit of review from the last message. If you recall, I had asked you a question. I'm going to ask you again, maybe just to get our minds going again. What is the most amazing thing about Jesus? That was the question that I had asked. And we had several answers, but there's the question again. And this is the interactive part. What is the most amazing thing about Jesus? Yes. You don't know yet. Well, were you not here last time? <laughs> okay, well, the most amazing thing about Jesus, let's, we'll read the article, we'll talk about that, you'll find out. So the article, we are looking at the article in our statement of faith about the Son, and I just put it up here to refresh ourselves. Um, we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was with the Father from all eternity, who for our salvation took upon himself human nature, and who by his redemptive death and resurrection conquered the forces of sin and Satan and atoned for the sins of mankind. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, and in God's redemptive purpose was crucified. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now, as Lord in Christ, at the right hand of the Father, intercedes for the saints. He is the Lord and Savior of all Christian believers, and the coming judge of the living and the dead. We believe in his full deity and full humanity, according to the scriptures. So, this might have jogged, this, this might have jogged a few of you's uh, memory about what is most amazing about Jesus. And if you recall, we specifically had honed in in the last message on these um, aspects of Jesus. The Jesus is the divine Son of God, and yet he also has a human nature. He's full deity, fully God, and yet also fully man. And so here is the answer. So Note this, I might ask you again, Jesus is fully God and fully human, and the reason that this is so important is because if we go back to that, that statement, everything else about Jesus hinges on this truth. If Jesus was not fully God and not fully man, then his crucifixion was just another countless Roman crucifixion, and it would mean nothing to us. So we had the scripture we had looked at last time was First John, uh, or sorry, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And 
I'm not going to talk much about this verse except just to remind you about this. This is an amazing, really, it's mind-boggling that the God of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us, walked on the earth, and was human just like we are. John says, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I had told you then that we're going to flesh this last phrase out a little bit more. Um, I intend that the message today will do that, although we're not specifically going to look at this verse. We're going to look at a few other passages. We also had noted that John gave us a specific reason for writing in his gospel. And I think it's important as Christ followers that when we read Scripture, that we keep this in mind. Maybe not, not just the Gospel of John, but the entire Scripture, I think in, in some ways this reason would, would, uh, would fit. But John says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. In other words, John had witnessed many things that he didn't record. He says they're not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. And so there's two things that we, we need to keep in front of us as we, as we think about who Jesus was and what he did. John says that Jesus was God, and the reason John wrote the gospel is so that we could believe on Jesus Christ and by doing so that we can have life. Okay, and so this morning especially, I, this, is, this is, I want you to understand that, that this is not just an exercise in history. This is where we get life, by knowing Jesus Jesus was not just simply a good moral teacher that taught us how to live properly. He did do that. He gave us an example, and he asked us to follow him. However, it's not just that. I closed in the last message with going back to the first verse in the first chapter, first several verses. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And again, so it's, it's I find it fascinating that John begins his story not with the Christmas account, but he goes back all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we have, again, that's a mind-boggling statement. We have a hard time wrapping our mind around this, that this, this man, Jesus, that, that John knew personally, that John had spent time with, he'd walked with him, he'd lived with him for three years, this man was God. And so John starts his story there because that is significant, that Jesus was God, and he was in the beginning. And then we also saw, we, we, we saw that Jesus in John, um, the first chapter there, he calls his first disciples, and uh, 
We know that Andrew was one of them, and it's fairly safe to assume that John was the other one, the two disciples that followed Jesus. And then we ended the message with looking a little bit at the uh, first miracle that Jesus did in John chapter 2, turning the water into wine at a wedding. And maybe, maybe this is just my speculation, but I find it fascinating that John begins his story in the beginning and does Jesus' first miracle with at a wedding. Because John also then, in the revelation that he had, he records for us the wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of the age when Jesus returns to, to claim his bride, there will be, we don't know for sure what that will be like, but there, there will be a marriage. The bride of Christ, the church, and the bride, or the groom, Jesus. And so, what all I want us to recognize this morning is that there's, there's a storyline, if you will, that Jesus is the author and the creator of this storyline. He has created time, space, and matter. And so time is a created thing, just like we are. And this is, he, he is the person, he is the deity that holds all this in place. And I want us to see it like a timeline, if you will. In the middle, in between those two points, Jesus calls his first disciples. And I, I, I want us to just think about this. So the two disciples, they begin to follow Jesus because they were fascinated or, about him. Jesus turns to them and says, well, what do you want? That, that was the first thing that John recorded. John actually records what time it was. It was the 10th hour. And so... That's one of the reasons why we assume that John was one of, the, one of those two that followed him because John, this, this was so important for John that years later, writing this letter, he remembered the hour. They followed Jesus, the rabbi, and Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want? And so the question for us this morning, I want to pose this as a question for us. If you could speak to Jesus in the flesh, as a man, and Jesus would ask you that question, what do you want? What would you answer? What do we really want? Do we even know? Do we even know what we want? What do you want? The disciples didn't really know at that time. They said, um, well, uh, where are you staying? Which, you know, that was, that was a logical question. Um, so, but... It really wasn't why Jesus was here. The passage I want to look at this morning is found in John chapter 14. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So the context of this passage is in the upper room. Um, Jesus had just, they had just shared the meal together. Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. Uh, Judas had left, and Peter had made his bold statement that he would be willing to die with the Lord. And the Lord says, but before the rooster crows, you will de deny me three times. That's in chapter 13. And then Jesus goes, if, I, I, I think it's, it's fascinating to read it as 
without any chapters because Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times and then goes right into saying, let not your hearts be troubled, chapter 14, verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Sorry, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place? And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And so, if we read chapter 13, actually chapter 12 and 13, the context is that Jesus is, this is, he knows this is his last real conversation. He's wanting his disciples to understand his mission. And they're not getting it. We pick up here Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. We pick up here. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So that's the disciples, even though Jesus is, is telling them what's about to happen, he's telling them where he's going and what he's doing. They're not, they're not understanding. And often, we don't understand either. Thomas says, I don't know where you're going. How can we know? And Jesus said, I am the way. It seems like, you know, this, this, is, a, this is a first grade level statement to his disciples. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so this morning... I, wanna, I want us to understand what Jesus was saying. That I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus goes on to say that if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And so the way to the Father is through Jesus. And so... In this statement, Jesus, I think, tells us everything. And, and maybe I could say this is a condensed, this is everything that we need to know about Jesus. He is the truth. He is the reality of what is. He is the way into that truth. And then he is the life that sustains us in that truth. Jesus, if we think of this storyline, he is the author of that storyline. He's the creator, the sustainer, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the mega. He is, he is what is. Jesus is the reality of all that exists. And I really want us to think about that, that, that you know, often, have you, have you ever thought that you know about that situation and then later found out that, oh, you really didn't know everything about that situation. And so what I want us to see here is that 
there is a reality, there is a truth of what is, even if we don't understand it, even if I can't see it, there is a reality that is truth. And Jesus is that truth. Even if I cannot comprehend it or understand it, or even if I don't completely see it, that doesn't change the reality of that truth. However, unfortunately, many of us, we look through life at the lenses of what we see. And our reality, our, our truth, is what we can see and experience personally. We live in our own little bubble. And I'm afraid, I wonder, I wonder, especially here in the West, I wonder if far too many times we attempt then to bring Jesus into our bubble rather than fully comprehending and understanding the reality and the truth of Jesus, we simply reduce him to something that fits into our bubble. Something that fits into our reality. We still remain the author of our story. The problem is when we do that, when we do that, we will always still have misplaced identity. It's only when we begin to clearly see that our life begins when we acknowledge that there is a bigger reality, that there is a truth that I need to submit to and enter into that life really begins and we find an identity that is worth having. Jesus is that truth. He's the way into that truth. And he is the life of that truth. I put together this timeline that I hope will give us a visual of what I'm trying to communicate. Jesus was God. He was with God. He is God in eternity past. There was a beginning. They create, God created, the Trinity created time, space, and matter. Jesus died on the cross. We are here today, October 8, 2023. We know that in the future, time will cease to be and there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb and there will be an eternity future where there is no more time, space, or matter. But Jesus is the author and the sustainer of this story that's being written out, that's being played out today. 
We are in this storyline today. And I love, Jonathan, what you shared this morning. When you know your father, you are home. What I want us to know, this, what I want us to understand this morning is our father. And when we become a part of our father's story, we can know that we are home, we are safe, and we are kept by him, regardless of circumstances. I'd like to put a little plug in here that I am this way. You know, we, we love, we, we um, I heard somebody say uh, just recently that if they could freeze time today, they would do it because, James, maybe that was you. I, I'm not sure in the context anymore, but, um, you know, I, I'm kind of that way. I just, I love our church the way it is. I, I love the stage of life that we're in as a family and, you know, I just, I kind of like it the way it is. The reality is, though, that every day is changing a little bit, a little bit. And every now and then, we have a big event, like moving into this church building. You know, that was kind of a big deal. Or, you know, maybe you have a child get married or whatever that event is. And it jolts you a little bit because you're like, how in the world did we get here? And I'm not sure that I like it. It's different. But if you are with the Father and you know the Father, it's okay. It's okay. I want you to know the Father, and I want for the rest of the message to consider how we get to know the Father. I want you, as John says, to have life and to have it abundantly. So remember, when Jesus began his ministry, there's an aspect of his ministry that we see come up again and again, and maybe this, this will be an interactive part of the message again, right here. So Anybody, what, what was that? When Jesus begins his ministry, when the, the Apostle Paul talks about it, when he would go and preach, there was, there was an aspect that he would always talk about. Anybody? Yes, repent. Um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. So this is after he was on the mountain and the devil had tempted him. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. And he's inviting us to participate. To participate in the story that he is writing. Mark says the same thing in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Uh, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, Pastor James just talked about this. When after Peter preached and the people were cut to the heart, they asked, what should they do? 
Peter says, well, repent and be baptized. And so, uh, again, Paul talks about that when Paul is in front of King Agrippa and he's giving his testimony. He gives his testimony of how he had been knocked down by the bright light, how he had met the Lord, and how he had been commissioned to preach the gospel. And this is what he taught. He was... He tells King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, and here's what he said, that they should repent and turn to God. Listen, American Christianity has reduced God to something that fits into their bubble, and that version of Christianity does not need repentance. That's not Christianity as taught in the Gospels. Repentance is the vehicle into truth. If you want to participate in the storyline of God, if you want to arrive, if you want to be home with the Father and know the Father, then repentance is the vehicle that gets us there. It's like that's the, the, the bus, if you will, that we can ride into connecting to God's story. And so I want us to consider David. We're going to look at David to see what repentance actually looks like. And so this is, this is we're going to look at David in, in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 12. This is after David had uh, went into Bathsheba. The Lord sent Nathan to David. That's verse 1 in chapter 12. And then Nathan gives the story of the poor man with the one sheep and the rich man with the many sheep. And the rich man steals the poor man's sheep in order to serve his guests. And David gets irate at the rich man. And then Nathan says, David, you are the man. And Nathan goes on to say that the God of Israel has anointed you king over Israel, has delivered you out of the hands of Saul. He gave you your master's house, your master's wives, And if that was too little, he would have added much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And he lists David's sin. And then he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Now, there's a lesson here for us. So, I don't know the entirety of your reality. I can't see into that bubble. But we can know for sure that if we don't confess it and repent, it will be exposed, if not in this life, at the end of the age. The reality of our lives, it might be hid to the crowds, but it is not hid from 
the Father. And David, here's what we want to look at. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And so the first thing to note about repentance is that there is confrontation. In order for us to come to repentance, our eyes need to be opened to the reality that my reality is not in alignment with the truth or with God's story. In some ways, somehow, maybe it's an event. Maybe it's something you read. When you read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit prompts you, maybe it's today. Somebody says something and you are confronted with the reality that my truth doesn't align with the truth. And when that happens, there needs to be confession. So confession is simply acknowledgement or agreeing with the reality of what is. Agreeing with the truth or God's story. We're going to primarily focus on confession. I want to, in a future message about when we, when we talk about the Spirit, I want to talk about reassurance and restoration as part of repentance. Four steps of repentance. For right now, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between repentance and confession. Because, you see, all repentance includes confession. In order for us to repent, we need to acknowledge first to ourselves and then to whoever else might be involved that our reality, our truth, is not in alignment with the truth and we want it to align with the truth. I have sinned, is what David said. My, my life, my story is out of alignment. I want it to align. And so, all repentance includes confession. However, not all confessions lead to repentance. Do you see the difference? So, it is possible that I acknowledge and agree and confess that yes, my reality, my truth is out of alignment with the truth. God's story, but I'm okay with that. Maybe we don't consciously think that through, but sometimes some of us find ourselves there. Not all confessions lead to repentance. And so I'd like to drill into confession a little bit. Um, Paul says to the Corinthians that there are, in, in, in thinking about the difference here between repentance and confession, he says, 
that there is a, a godly grief that produces repentance and a worldly grief that produces death. And so both would acknowledge that, yes, we're, we're not aligned. One is grieved to the point of turning away from their reality or their truth, their sin, back to God. The other simply says, so be it. It's the way it is. I'd like to turn now to Psalms 51. So this is a psalm that David wrote after being confronted by Nathan. Um, he wrote it to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Here's what David writes. And we're going to look at how David confessed his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And just a note here, steadfast love is the word hesed. Note that, we'll flesh it out in the next message a little more. David goes on to say, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The first component of a godly confession is I am responsible. Notice the my in David's confession. My iniquity, my sin, my transgression, my sin. Now, David is not... Um, David is making no excuses. And he very likely could have. Do you know how hard it is to be king? I'm still a much better king than Saul was, right? So, you know. Um, or maybe he could have said, uh, well, if you would have lived in the wilderness for 10 years being chased by your father-in-law, then, you know, that's... Um, he didn't... But David didn't do that. He owned his sin. My iniquity. My sin. So the first part of confession is I am responsible. A godly confession that leads to repentance makes no excuses. There's no room for the word but or maybe if only you don't understand. There's no blame throwing. There's no other names brought in. Simply, I own it. I am responsible. The second thing that we notice is that my sin is against God. David goes on to say, Against you and you only have I sinned and what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, this is noteworthy because remember, David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had killed Uriah to cover it up. He had disgraced his nation. 
he had sinned against God, against other people. And almost all sin always violates someone else. However, as grievous as that was, David's sin was more grievous towards God. David also recognized that before there was an action, before going into Bathsheba, his heart had disconnected from God. And at the core of his being, he had sinned against God. And so, this is so important for us to remember that the fruits of sin that we can read about in Galatians chapter 5 or uh, Ephesians 2 and 3, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, those kinds of things, those kinds of things are always simply a fruit of a heart that has been disconnected from God and that is living in its own bubble or own reality. And until that heart is reconnected to God or repents, then that fruit won't change. There will be no fruit to the Spirit from a disconnected heart. Thirdly, my sin is at the core of who I am. David goes on to say that, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David seemed to recognize that his heart is selfish. He recognized that at his birth, he was disconnected from God. He was dead in his trespasses and sins, as Paul says to the Ephesians, that he was by nature a child of wrath. And you know, the longer I live, you don't need to be real educated to understand that your child is by nature a child of wrath. You know, I never had to send my boys to school to learn to be disobedient. I mean, there's a lot of things they learn from us, but some of those things, I don't know where they learned it. I mean, we had a son... I won't name a name, but <laughs> he loved to bite. Now, he's never seen Charlene or I do that. <laughs> Where did he learn it? Our hearts, we are by nature children of wrath. And this is why it's so important. Maybe a little bit of a, a, a tip here, child training tip. This is why it's imperative that your child learns two things. One is what authority is. You're six months old, 12 months old, 18 months old. They need to know that mom and dad are their authority. And if mom or dad says no, then that means no. And I made the mistake far too many times that I would try to um, explain my way through things. You know, I had this, this, this idea that uh, if I could simply reason with them a little bit, they would say, oh, wise father, for sure. <laughs> but that's not how it works, because we're children of wrath. And so 
the sooner your child learns that to be obedient to dad or mom, regardless of the logic behind it. Now there's a time as they get older where that doesn't work. I'm talking about your six months, 12 months, 18 months. Because think about it. There's going to be a time when that child is an adult and they are asked, they're required to be obedient to the father. And it doesn't make sense. I've been there. I don't know why. Because the Father's ways, remember? The Father's ways are so much bigger than my ways as the sky is above the heavens. We can't comprehend, but we're asked to be obedient. And so your child needs to learn that. The other thing is your child needs to know that untruthfulness, saying a lie, is not tolerated. It's just not tolerated. Because at some point, that child will need to be honest with himself first and acknowledge that my reality isn't in alignment with the truth. And a liar can't do that. The last thing that David realizes here is I offer nothing. Four components of confession. I am responsible. It's my sin. My sin is first against God. And listen, I'm not downplaying the offenses towards other people, but it is first against God. My sin is at the core of who I am. We're born as children of wrath. And then fourthly, I offer nothing. We, off, we find this in, in, chapter, in verse 16. David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. In other words, David is recognizing that there is nothing that he could do that would earn back or make up for his sin. And yet, we tend to want to do that all the time. We tend to think that, well... We're not perfect here. We'll make up for it over here. And I think that is especially prevalent for those of us who have grown up in church. We have lived from an outside perspective, moral lives. We've been good people. And we think that somehow we need to be effective for Christ because of what he's done for me. If you recall, this is called the for position for Christ. Pastor James's message, series of messages on the postures of how we come to God. Many of us, we tend to do that. We tend to think that, well, we'll live good lives. We'll be involved in the church and we'll uh, be involved in a mission and we'll, um, we, we want to do things for Christ because of what he's done for me. However, here's what David goes on to say. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. God simply wants you to be with him. He wants you as his child. And you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. A broken and contrite spirit. An acknowledgement that my reality is out of line and I need to get it in line with God's story. I'd like to read just a few more verses here in this passage. Backing up to verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David understood that it is the heart that needs healing, not just outward performance. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. When the Israelites left Egypt, they put blood, the blood of the lamb, on the doorposts with hyssop. David is saying, you purge me, my heart. He goes on to say, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David understood something that many, many people still struggle to understand. That being with God is what God wants from all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that you are a God that has chosen us. That you are a God that desires relationship. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not yet been with you, who has not turned from their own reality to you, that your spirit would continue to draw, that they would find rest in you, that you could purge, clean their hearts. Father, we commit this to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.